to um, help our brothers and sisters. Amen. And so, um, and so just so you know, uh, we are a mission-minded church, and a lot of times people in the seats wait for the pastors on the pulpit to evangelize. People on the seats wait for the pastors on the pulpit to schedule an event or to schedule some sort of outreach. But I want to let you know that we're a church that believes the people on the seats should be heading the initiatives. And so if there's an initiative on your heart, if you want to feed the homeless, if you want, if there's a, a, a city or a country that's been in devastation that's on your heart, we want to empower you to speak up. Let me know. Uh, talk to myself. Talk to my wife. You can talk to Mikey. And we would love to sit down and come behind you and kind of um, do whatever we can on our end as a church to help move in that direction. Amen. And so I just don't want you to let you know that you don't have to wait for the leaders to initiate anything. If you want to initiate something, let me know. We'd love to get behind it. And so with that being said, uh, can we just pray for all of the uh, cities and the nations um, that are uh, devastated with the recent events? Um, and, you know, if I name one, I have to name them all. And, and so we're just going to even pray for those cities and those nations that have been in devastating situations for a long time and no one has really paid attention to it. And so we're just, can we just pray for the cities really of this earth, <laughs> to be honest with you, um, and, ask that the, um, and ask that the church would rise up and become who God has called us to be. This is an opportunity for the church to shine. And so, Heavenly Father, uh, we lift up the cities of this earth, the cities of these nations. Uh, uh, we lift up these nations. We lift up these hurting people uh, that have been devastated by natural disaster, uh, people that have been uh, devastated by famine, uh, people that it's an ongoing devastation. This earth is just crying out. The earth is crying out. Sin is strangling it, but we know that the church is sent to be the light and the hope. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just send a wave of your people across all of the nations that would preach the gospel, that would give life and would bring healing, but also um, not just spiritual needs, but that you would send money, finances, water, food, and all those things that are needed, Lord, to meet the physical needs of those that are suffering throughout our region and the regions of the globe. And so let Inspire Church do what we can in our city and in the cities around the world. Um, let us do our part. And so I just pray, Lord, if there's anybody here who has family members that are in these cities, uh, friends, I pray, Lord, that you would bring peace, you would bring comfort, and I pray, Lord, that you would even empower uh, us to minister to those that are in need of encouragement. Lord, help give us a word that would encourage somebody who's fearful. Give us a word that would encourage somebody who's down and out. Give us a word that's to encourage somebody who even is suffering loss. Give us your words, Lord, to speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, before we begin this morning... Uh, I guess I want to just share with you two things. Uh, first, first thing I want to share with you this morning is that the message today that I'm going to present to you has actually been inspired by another pastor who preached a message. And many of you may be familiar with this pastor. His pastor this pastor's name is Timothy Keller. And he preaches a message called, Should I Not Love the Great City? Now, typically, I'll use research and resources to kind of help aid in putting my messages together. Um, and so typically, I will refer to resources and things like that. But I, I think it's important that this message today, to tell you and let you know, this message specifically today has been really influenced um, by Pastor Keller's message, um, Should I Not Love That Great City? And I just kind of was, as I was studying and researching, it was just so good that I just felt like, man, I, I really want to kind of package it, represent it. Um, I want to put some of my thoughts in there, but I want to represent some of the things that he has to say. So I'm not a plagiarizer, um, but I just feel that uh, this is an appropriate word for us, and this is an appropriate word really for, I think, God's church um, throughout the world. And so I just kind of wanted to share that. The second thing I want to do is I just I want to remind you what my prayer has been as I was putting together this sermon series um, on the book of Jonah. And I've been simply praying that the messages would challenge us as a church and challenge you as an individual. The messages would challenge us to start listening and stop running. 
and start moving on mission in our cities, in our neighborhoods, with our friends, our families, and our coworkers for the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we would start listening, stop running, and start moving on mission in our cities, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces for the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's my hope that you're inspired the next couple of weeks by the story of Jonah um, to respond in faith and in love for the city. In faith and in love for those that are lost. Amen? And so we love to pray. And we just prayed. But I'm going to pray again for this morning's message. Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would increase and that I would decrease to nothing. Lord, I pray that my words would be your words because we know that only your words do not come back void. When man speaks out of his own opinion, those words may fall on empty hearts and empty minds. But when the Holy Spirit speaks, those words do not come back void. So I pray that you would speak through me, speak in me. I pray you would speak from my notes, outside of my notes. And I pray, Lord, that your word would be delivered, that Inspire Church would continue to move in year two on mission in our city, and that every individual in here would be inspired to love people into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Lord, let us not be a religious sanctuary. Lord, but let us be a people that would go out to the marginalized, the disenfranchised, and love on them for the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning's message, I'm basically going to break it down into two sections. The first section, I'm going to focus on the city that God calls great. And in the second section, we'll conclude with talking about another kind of city, the city of God. Now, if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Jonah. And we've been in Jonah uh, for a week now. We're going to continue in Jonah for the next couple of weeks. But if you have your Bibles, let's go back to Jonah chapter 1. And I'm going to read verse 1. And so Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, reads like this. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, reads like this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah... Son of Amittai, saying, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. He says, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Last week, if you were here, we looked at Jonah, and I'm excited to announce that our podcasts are almost back. And we should have last week's message and this week's message this week. So if you were here last week or you just want a refresher, please feel free to go back to our app at the end of this evening. And we should have our podcast up and ready. I think that's worthy of maybe a glory to God. Amen. Okay. So last week we talked about Jonah. We focused in on a character study of the man of God, Jonah. This morning we're going to talk about Nineveh. And so before we actually get into the message, I actually want you to see a map if we have it. And if we could put the map up really quickly. And I just want you to take a look at this map. And on this map is really simple. You basically have um, the process of Jonah running away from his call and the process of him going back to his call. Really simple map. And so let me explain to you the three points on this map. You'll see the point that's named Joppa in the middle. Everybody see that? And if you remember the story, Joppa is the place that Jonah went to to catch a boat ride. And if you look to um, the far, far right of Joppa, you will see Nineveh. Do you see the city of Nineveh? So you you have Joppa and then you have Nineveh. And if you look at the opposite direction of Nineveh, you will see the place that Jonah was trying to escape to, and that's Tarshish. Everybody with me? Now, I want you to notice something interesting about Jonah. Notice God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, and Jonah decides to go the exact extreme opposite direction. Literally, Nineveh and Tarshish are in the opposite directions. You see that? So Joppa is the port that's by Jerusalem where Jonah boards a boat, 
And then to the right of Joppa is Israel. And then a little bit further to the right, you'll see the city of Nineveh, which is located in current-day Mosul, Iraq. And that's where you'll find Nineveh. So Nineveh sat on the east of the Tigris River about 220 miles away of what we know as Baghdad, Iraq. So Nineveh would be found in Iraq. Now, as I was looking at this simple map, and I was just kind of studying it and just look. Actually, I wouldn't really study. There's nothing to study, but I was just kind of looking at it. Um, something funny kind of popped into my mind. But the thing that I realized about Jonah was Jonah is a story about a man who was on mission locally in Jerusalem but got angry with God when God called him to international missions. So some of you, God may call you to go to the Philippines. Don't be angry. Get out of your local space and go on an international missions trip, okay? That's a little, that's a commercial. But Jonah was doing the work of God in his hometown and got angry when God asked him to go international. Amen? In fact, I think another funny thing that I think I was talking to Kat about this, another funny thing that I noticed is that he boards a boat that looks like it's headed towards Spain. And it's almost like Jonah would rather be on vacation in the Mediterranean than on mission in Nineveh. Oh, come on. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I don't want to go on a mission trip. I'd just rather go on vacation. If I'm going to go across the seas, I'm going to go on vacation, not to do a mission. Well, shame on you. I'd rather go to Club Med than the Philippines. No, take that money you were saving to go on vacation and get to the Philippines. And if you're mad, then I'm going to call you Jonah. <laughs> Slight joke. All right. But I want you to see this. Nineveh was called by God great. Nineveh was the city that God called great. In fact, God refers to Nineveh as that great city three times in this book. So my question is, what made Nineveh so great? Now, I'm going to break that down to you. There were three different greats or three different ways that Nineveh was great. Nineveh was great in evil. Nineveh was also great in stature. And Nineveh was great in influence. So let's talk about this evil thing just for a moment. Nineveh was great in evil. In fact, if you read chapter 1, verse 1, and if you read chapter 3, verse 8, you'll see that both God and the king of Nineveh himself called Nineveh and its inhabitants evil. Now, to understand the wickedness of this city, we need to look at who the founder of this city was. Nineveh was founded by a man named Nimrod. Can you say Nimrod? And as you know, I love to bag on the millennials in here. Don't go home and name your child Nimrod. Some of you are like, wow, that's just a cool name. It's so unorthodox. I've never heard that before. I'm going to name my child Nimrod. No matter how unorthodox or how cool or how different it may sound, please, there's a reason why nobody in the world is named Nimrod. And if you ever come across a Nimrod, high five them, God bless them, don't tell them I said all this. But they may need to know exactly why, where, where their name came from. Let me explain to you who Nimrod was in scripture. Nimrod was a hunter. You like that, huh? Sounds good. Nimrod was a mighty man. He was a warrior. But Nimrod hated God. And Nimrod was known for building rebellious cities. In fact, Nimrod was the one who oversaw the building of Babel. Everybody remember that story? Now, I want you guys to hear this because this is even something I was doing in my studying. There were some suggestions, especially with uh, Hebrew scholars believe, Hebrew Old Testament scholars believe, that Nimrod builds Babel because he's promising humanity that he can protect them if God were to ever to flood the earth again. And so he tries to build, and we know through scripture they're, they're, he's, they're trying to reach the heavens. But Nimrod is said by some Hebrew scholars that he built the Tower of Babel. He tried to build a city so high that God couldn't destroy. Nimrod raised up cities that hated God. And because Nimrod was both a physical giant, scripture says he was a, he's a giant of a man. 
because Nimrod was both a physical giant and a skilled warrior, he thought that he could challenge God and even destroy God himself. This was Nineveh's legacy. Nimrod founded Nineveh. The Ninevites were cruel. They were extremely violent conquerors who killed and enslaved other cities. They would use extreme violence to intimidate cities. They would cut heads off and hang headless bodies and heads up so that cities could see what they would do to them if they stood against them. We're told that at least three times in history, Nineveh, which is basically part of the nation of Assyria, tried to wipe Israel completely off the face of the earth. Not only were they cruel to the outsiders, but on the inside, this city was full of immorality. They worshipped known demon deities, and they elevated their kings and their leaders to the status of gods. Nineveh was great and evil. Nineveh was also great in stature. This city was uniquely fortified by massive walls. It's said that the walls were so wide that three chariots could race around the city side by side simultaneously comfortably. There was even a time when scholars thought it would take three days just to journey from one side of Nineveh to the other. Now, there have been some recent excavations that would suggest that the city may not have been a three days journey, but nonetheless... The excavations proved the city was very large. And I was talking to my wife this week, and I was just thinking about how big the city was. And I was thinking about how some people have thought it was a three-day journey, but other people was like, well, no, recent excavations kind of prove it wasn't that big. But nonetheless, uh, I was on a vacation a couple of years ago uh, with my buddy Chris and my wife. We went to New York for the first time. Anybody ever been to New York? New York's a great place. Uh, in fact, my wife and I always comment that when we went to New York, um, there are some places you watch them in the movies and you go to the real place and you're very disappointed. You're like, this is not what the movie said. But when you go to New York, it's like one of the one places where it's like every bit as big as like you see and glamorous as you see um, in the movies. And so uh, I remember we went on this trip to New York and my buddy Christopher was excited because it's his hometown. We were only there for two days. And so he was determined to show us everything. And so we got there, and the moment we got there, we got a soft-serve ice cream from Mr. Softies, and then we ran across the street and got a pastrami sandwich from a, a famous deli, and then after that, we went across the street to Grimaldi's and ate pizza, but then we had to go to another pizza place that was called... Lombardi's and we ate there because Lombardi's and Grimaldi's have this ongoing reputation of who started pizza first in New York and it was great pizza. We don't know what pizza tastes like. I'm telling you right now. We eat cardboard boxes compared to what New York does. And then we had to go watch a baseball game in New York. And so we went and watched a baseball game and we were there for about four innings just enough to like, wow, that's great. There's a base hit. Okay, we got to go. And then... We went to Chinatown because I love Chinese food, which I think the Bay Area is better Chinese food. And then I just felt it was on and on. I'm like limping, and there's nothing wrong with me. <laughs> but as I began to think about, as I began to think about that trip, I thought to myself, A, never again. <laughs> B, plan better next time. <laughs> in other words, never again will I try to see that big city in one day. Plan better next time um, and uh, see it's impossible to see a city that big in one day. So when they say that Nineveh was a great city and they say it was a three days journey, I can kind of understand. So Nineveh was great and evil. Nineveh was great in stature. And number three, finally, Nineveh was also great in influence. And let me just share with you, when you say great, there are two sides to the word great. One side refers to something big, something large, something filled with people, and this was Nineveh. 
But the other side of the word great refers to something of importance. This city was important. God wasn't just calling Nineveh to a great city in stature, but he was calling Jonah. I'm sorry, God wasn't calling Jonah to a city of great stature. He was calling Jonah to an influential city, a city full of strategic significance. And inspire church, here's what I want you to understand. The city that God has called great is great in influence, it's great in stature, but it was also great in evil. But this was the same great city that God greatly loved. He loved this city. And if you look at the book of Jonah, chapter 3, verse 10, this is what is said. When God saw what they did, referring to the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of his, or God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So when Jonah goes to the great city of Nineveh and he preaches literally a seven-word message, all of the people in Nineveh, including the animals, literally fasted and repented. Now I don't know how the animals repented, but they definitely didn't eat. And scripture tells us that at the sign of this repentance, God relented from his judgment. He pulled his judgment away. Now, let's look at chapter 4. I want you to see how Jonah responds to God. Chapter 4, verse 1 through 3 says this. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Can you believe that? Jonah preaches maybe a five to seven word message and the entire city comes to Jesus. Can you imagine that kind of ministry? That would be an amazing ministry. You just walked in the middle of the city and God gave you a word and you spoke that word and the entire city bowed its knees to Jesus. How excited would you be? How amazing would that feel? You'd probably take pictures and post it on Twitter and Facebook. Look where I was. Look what I did, right? But here's the thing is Jonah, instead of being excited that he had a fruitful ministry event, he was actually extremely and exceedingly angry. Scripture says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I yet was in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, and you're merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah is drama. <laughs> this boy is drama. But I want you to notice something. We can sit on our ivory towers and look at the story of Jonah and say, how disgusting that this man would be so angry. But Jonah has a right to hate this city. I want you to think about it. I want you to think if all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, you wake up and God says, I want you to get up and I want you to go to the Middle East. And I want you to take the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of a city that is a well-known ISIS stronghold. I think you'd be extremely reluctant to. You see, some of us still struggle with loving our neighbors, let alone having to preach to our sworn enemy, let alone having to put our life on the line for the gospel. And as much as we can look at Jonah and say, Jonah, you prejudiced, racist, prideful, religious man, we have to look at the whole story and realize, well, God called Jonah to go into the middle of a city that was his sworn enemy that had dealt brutally and cruelly with people that were against them. But here's the point. God seeks to bring grace and mercy to this big, evil city. And I want you to notice the opposition to this mission. It's not Satan. 
It's not some kind of evil spiritual force, but it's literally a believer. Now, I get it. It's difficult. Don't get me wrong, but I want you to see this. It's a religious, morally upright man who believes God's word. Here's the tough truth that I want you to understand today. Sometimes Christians can be city-disdaining, city-phobic, religiously moral people. Sometimes Christians can be city-disdaining, city-phobic, religiously moral people. Here's what's sad and true. When it comes to the salvation of the city, God is the protagonist. And many times it's not the city It's not the city officials. It's not even the political climate, but it's the churches of that city that become antagonistic to the salvation mission of God. The book of Jonah then is about a God, about God, who loves a violent, immoral, pagan, big city. And this is why the message that was spoken from Timothy Keller really inspired me today. And I want to inspire you this morning. And I want our church to be inspired. We cannot be a church that hides the gospel. We also cannot be a church that runs away from evil instead of running into evil. Too many people that I've heard say, you know what, why are you still in California? God's going to judge California. Why are you still in that city? Why are you still in the Bay Area, one of the most unreached regions or one of the most God-rejecting regions in the nation? You should leave that city. You should leave that region. You should go elsewhere. And I don't know where that notion came from, but the people of God are not supposed to run from evil, but we're supposed to run into evil. We're called to be a light, and you can't be a light unless you go into some place that's dark. That kind of fear pushes Christians out of the city because the city is not, is too evil. That's not a biblical fear. We'll never accomplish God's mission with that kind of fear. I want you to think about it. In the Bay Area, there are 8 million people. In, the Union, in Union City, there are 77,000 people. Cities are significant parts of God's plan. And I want to prove this to you. If you don't believe me that God loves big cities... I want to prove this to you. I want to share with you four cities throughout salvation history that I think would really, really um, inspire and challenge us to be on mission today. And I'm going to share with you four cities. The first city is going to be the city of Babylon. You might be familiar with that in biblical history. The second city is going to be the city of Rome. The third city is we're going to go back to Nineveh and talk about the end of the story. And finally this morning, I'm going to conclude with talking about another kind of city, and it's called the city of God. So let's talk about Babylon for a quick second. Three centuries after Jonah, I want you to know that God's people, Israel, were conquered by the empire of Babylonia. And they were taken captive and taken into exile, and they were taken to a world-class city named Babylon. Babylon was world-class in everything that they did. They were the world's leading city. Everything that came from Babylon and out of Babylon determined the rest of the world. And the children of Israel were put into exile and captured and conquered by Babylonia, and they were marched towards Babylon. But if you read the book of Jeremiah, you will see that the Hebrew people huddled together, and they came up with what they thought was a great plan. Even though they were conquered and demoralized by the Babylonians, They said to themselves, we will march towards Babylon, but we will not live in that ugly city. The Hebrew exiles reasoned among themselves that they would actually set up camp around the outskirts of Babylon, but they would never enter into Babylon. They thought to themselves, much like you and I often think to ourselves, it's better to live in exile outside of this city It's safer for our communities to live away from the city's immorality, to live away from the city's dark influences, to live away from the overall cultural pollution of Babylon. 
Now, surprisingly to me, we're told that God hated that idea. That was not God's plan. In fact, we're told that God basically pens a letter to the Hebrew people. And he writes through the prophet Jeremiah. I want you to listen to the words that God writes the Hebrew people. Jeremiah 29, 4-7. It should be up on the PowerPoint. It says this, and this is powerful. This is challenging. This is missional. This is inspirational. Please hear the letter that God pens to his people. Thus says the Lord, to all the exiles who, I'm ha- who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in a marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. Listen, inspired church, hear me out. This is what God says. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Wow. I want to share with you, based off of God's letter, four missional thoughts that I think should stick to our hearts based on God's letter. First thought is this. God says, I sent you there. It wasn't by accident or it wasn't by evil, but it was by my will that you're in that great city. Wait a minute, God, they conquered us. Everything going around us is being shaken and destroyed. This is evil. We're your people. You're taking us out of our holy city, away from our temple. We want to go back. And God says, no, I sent you to that city to be exiled. What does this point out to us? It points out to us that if God sent us there, then God must have a plan for that place. Number two, God says, not only did I send you there, but God says, I want you to multiply there. You guys see that? He says, don't lay low. Don't hide out. Don't decrease. But instead, multiply. Fill the city. The second missional thought I want the church to know is that God's people in the city equals God's presence in the city. If the people of God leave the city, the presence of God leaves the city. There's no reason why the people of God should leave this city. Number three. He says, number one. I sent you there, number two, multiply there. And he says, number three, I want you to seek the city's welfare. I want you to know God's calling people to work in the city, to vote in the city, to pay taxes to the city, and to clean up the parks of the city. I want you to know, third missional thought, God's mission is spiritual, but it's also practical. If we pray for the city, that's great. If we evangelize the city, that's great. But if we don't love the city with our hands and our feet, then we are not really being on mission. This is why this year we are planning to get outside of this hotel. It's an ugly hotel anyway. Sorry, that wasn't missional, that was tribal. (laughs) But right now we're trying to have conversations and I have a meeting actually set up to be able to say what schools in Union City need us the most. Like not only are we called to evangelize and pray and that's great and that's good and we need to do that. To me that's primary, but we also need to be able to use our hands and feet to love the city Right? Don't tell me how much you care. Show me, and then I'll listen. So here are the missional thought. Number one, I sent you there. Number two, multiply there. Number three, seek the city's welfare. And then finally, number four, here it is. For all of us, 
spiritually. We need to do all those things, but then we need to pray for the city because I want you to know nothing happens without prayer. The city may not know it. They may not even acknowledge it. They may not even believe it. But the truth is, our city needs our prayers. And this was the story of the exiles sent into Babylon. God said, don't run away from that city. Go inside that city. Now, there's a second city that I mentioned throughout salvation history, and that's the city of Rome. Did you guys know that the nickname for Rome was called the Eternal City? That was how they referred to Rome. Now, I want you to know, in the Old Testament, we see that God places Jonah on a mission to the city of Nineveh. We see that God places the children of Israel on a mission. They don't even know it, to Babylon. But in the New Testament, we also see God loving the city. If you look at the strategy of gospel proclamation in the book of Acts, especially with the Apostle Paul, you'll see that the mission was completely urban-centric. Paul would plant Christian communities and then leave cities after planting these communities, and he would literally bypass the villages in the countrysides. So the question is, did God hate the or did God did, did God hate and did Paul hate the country? Was Paul a country hater? Or were the great cities of the earth of strategic importance to the gospel? I want you to notice the results. By 300 A.D., 50% of the urban centers of the Roman Greco world were Christianized. Whereas the countryside and the villages were all pagan. In fact, it's believed that the word pagan comes from the Greek word paganus, which means man of the country or rural man. So what can we learn from this history? As the city goes, so goes the society. You can reach an artist in the village, but you can reach the art world in the city. In the village, you can reach a person, but in the city, you can reach a culture. Because God called the early Christians to the city, the Roman Empire that started out hostile and violent towards Christianity became a nation that was overwhelmingly Christianized. Now let's go back to Nineveh. If you have your Bible still, let's go to chapter 4 and let's read verses 5 through 8 together. So again, we visited Babylon, we've visited Rome, and now we're going back to Nineveh. Jonah chapter 4, verse 5 through 8. Listen to the word of the Lord. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would come of the city. You know what Jonah was hoping for? Jonah was like, God, I knew that you were going to be gracious and merciful. I knew it. That's why I didn't want to come here. But, you know, Jonah went outside the city. He found a nice little shaded area overlooking the hill, looking at the city. And he sat there because he was betting that the Ninevites were going to, they were going to repent. But he was betting the Ninevites were so evil that it wouldn't take much longer for them to go right back. And so you know what he was hoping? He was hoping to get front rows to a light show. He's like, well, I'm going to get front row seats to God's judgment. And to be honest with you, if I'm being petty, I probably would have want front row seats to that too. I'm just being honest, right? I would have been, wow. You're all looking at me like you're, you would be petty too. Don't just, you're just looking at me like, no, I would never. But this is what Jonah, Jonah was waiting for judgment. Jonah was waiting for fire fall down on these evil people. They've been decapitating our heads for fall too long. I know they're going to backslide. I know they're going to stumble. Some of you say you wouldn't do that, but that's what you do on IG. You're like, oh, there she goes, right backwards. We act like we don't do it, but we just look at people. And there's a little pride that wells up when someone goes backwards. Well, I knew she wasn't going to make it. I guess I have to go there because everyone's looking at me like, no. <laughs> like, yes. Maybe not all of you. Maybe it's just me. <laughs> We're being honest. Now let's continue. 
So he finds a booth, finds shade. He sits up and he waits for the city. Scripture says this, now the Lord God appointed a plant, praise the Lord. And that plant, he made it to cover over Jonah. That it might be even more shade over his head. Hallelujah. To save him from his discomfort. Can you imagine? The sun is just beating down. But when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm to attack the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And look what Jonah says. And Jonah asked if he could die. <laughs> Jonah's interesting. He's gone from like a hero to a runner. He's gone from being humbled in the belly of a fish to being cold. And now he's gone from comfortable to suicidal. And it's here in the midst of his emotional chaos, God asks him a question. Anytime God asks a question, you always know that there's a rebuke coming in there somewhere. Look what God says. He says, are you angry about the death of this plant? And Jonah says, yes, angry enough to die. And God replies, Really, I call this whole scenario the parable of the plant and the city. God replies, look at chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Look at God's reply. God says, the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right from their left and also much cattle. Oddly, this is where the book of Jonah ends. He says, you pity the plant? You didn't plant it? You didn't make it grow? It literally rose up overnight and literally died the next night. He says, and if you pity the plant, should I not pity Nineveh? Because inside of that great city is 120,000 people who do not know their left from their right. If you look closely, God is contrasting Jonah with the plant to God in the city. God says there's 120,000 people who are spiritually clueless in Nineveh. And I love what Pastor Keller says when he tells the story of an inner city pastor who was asked, why do you pastor in a big city? And the pastor responds, and it's kind of funny and maybe a little over the top, but it really drives home the point. The pastor responded and said, well, in the country, there are more plants than people. But in the city, there are more people than plants. And since God loves people way more than he loves plants, God must love the city way more than he loves the country. Now, I apologize to those of you from the country. God loves the country. And I told you it was a little over the top, but it does drive home a point. I want you guys to know. As amazing as nature is, as majestic as the mountains are and the rivers are, there is absolutely, positively nothing more beautiful and valuable to God than a person. And when you look at the great cities of the earth, it's full of people. As frustrating as 880 may be during commute hours. It's full of the most brilliant thing on the planet. As frustrating as Bart may be. And the recent bad publicity that's been coming from riding on Bart. Bart was built to transport the most important thing on the planet. In the bay there are 8 million in Union City, 77,000 of what God considers to be the most precious, the most valuable, the most beautiful aspect of all of creation. People. And I know we don't have a missional heart sometimes because we hate people. They get on our nerves. But God loves the city. God loves the people. And we are called to the people. Now, I want to conclude this morning. And I want to share with you 
about another kind of a city. And that city is called the city of God. We talked about Babylon. We talked about Rome. We talked about Nineveh. And now we're going to talk about, really briefly, another kind of city. It's called the city of God. There was a man, many of you might be familiar with him, by the name of Augustine, who wrote a book called The City of God. And he writes this book in response to something that took place. And that something that took place, that event in history, is compared to the likes of 9-11. Let me tell you what I mean by that. On August 24th, around the year 410 A.D., the ancient world was shaken to its core. This was the day that an army of Goths scaled the walls of Rome and sacked the city. For three days they plundered, killed, and burned Rome. And interestingly enough, they didn't stay to occupy Rome. It was almost as if they were making a point to say, you thought you were a superior civilization, but look what the barbarians can do. They literally burned Rome for three days, then went back home. And during this time, everything became uncertain. The entire civilized world began to shake to their core because they began to think, if Rome isn't safe, we're not safe. If Rome can fail and fall, we can fail and fall. Even the Christians were beginning to question because the Christians were starting to assume power in Rome. In fact, the Christians were assuming so much power and they were assuming so much political power in Rome that they were beginning to believe that that's how God was going to win the world. Christians were saying, if we can assume power in Rome, the power center of the world, then we will Christianize the entire world. And that's how God's going to do it. But after Rome was sacked by godless barbarians, even the Christians began to ask, why is God abandoning us? Augustine writes in the city of God, because Christians began to confuse Rome, the eternal city, with the city of God. Augustine pens the book, The City of God, because Christians began to confuse Rome, the eternal city, with the city of God. Augustine reminds us that there is only one city that cannot burn. There is only one city that cannot be shaken. There's only one city that cannot be broken. And there's only one city that guarantees our safety, and that is the city of God. <laughs> Augustine reminds us and reminds them during that time, if you are freaking out about what the barbarians did, it's probably because you've placed your wealth and your value in an earthly city. Yeah. Now please hear me out. What I'm about to say is very important. Augustine warns us of another equally disastrous mentality. On one hand, we cannot fall so deeply in love with the earthly city that we're devastated when it's destroyed. On the other hand, we cannot and should not sit back and say, let the city burn, let the city die. It's a wicked city. As Christians, we're not just a counterculture. This is huge. As Christians... We are not just a counterculture. We are an alternate city. If everything else is falling apart around us, we should keep the community moving forward. Now, during this tragedy, there's a book called How the Irish Saved Civilization. During this tragedy, a hundred monks got together. And they said to themselves, and they determined, let's live in simplicity. Let's live in accordance to the teachings of Jesus. Things became, things became, became devastating. 
plagues began to hit. I don't know if you know history, but plagues, two plagues devastated things. And while this was all going on, people were chaotic. And monks got together and they said to themselves, let's live in simplicity. And he said, let's live off of 10% of what we produce and let's give away 90%. Let's live off of 10%. Let's give away 90%. And if you read that book, it's an interesting book and it just talks about how these 100 monks, because they began to live in simplicity according to the teaching of Jesus and selflessly and gave everything away, single-handedly began to save a civilization that was destroying itself. They kept art alive. They kept learning alive. They kept peace, love, and hope alive. This was the city of God inside of the city of man, working according to the mission heart of God. I want you guys to hear this. At the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we're told that the city, that a city will come down out of heaven from God like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. What's amazing to me and what's beautiful about God is that at the end of history, we will not go out away from the world to some new place. We will not go out of the world to some new place and we will not run away from the unrighteousness of the earth. But what's beautiful about God is that the city of God, we will not go to it, but it will come down to us. Unburnable, unstoppable unshakable the city will come down clean to clean to renew and to purify the cities of this world this is the beauty of the christian narrative we do not run away even at the end of time we will not go away some people think we'll go to heaven what happens is heaven will come down here are you with me that righteous city will come down one more story and we'll pray In 165 A.D., there were two devastating plagues that wiped out over a quarter of the people in all major cities. A hundred years later, there was another devastating plague. And this is all recorded in a book called The Rise of Christianity by a man named Rodney Starks. And this is a pagan, non-Christian observer writing this. Listen to what he says. Doctors were incapable. Prayers from the temple, useless. People were afraid to visit visit anyone. As a result, thousands died because nobody attended to them. Entire households perished. Bodies of the dying were being heaped up on top of each other in the streets, and the streets were full of half-dead creatures staggering in the streets. You wonder where we get zombies from. That's where it came from. Now listen to this quote. The catastrophe was so overwhelming, we became indifferent to every rule of morality. Many pushed sufferers away, even their own families. Often throwing them on the road, hoping to avert contagion. Sad story. But there's a man by the name of Dionysius, and he writes regarding the Christians during that time. Listen to this. He says, most Christians, notice most, most Christians in the plague showed unbounded love and loyalty. Never sparing themselves and thinking only one for another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need, and ministering to them in Christ. Many departed their life serenely happy, for although they were infected by their neighbors, they cheerfully cheerfully accepted their pain. He continues, the best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner, and a number of our elders too. Talk about a leadership requirement for a church. You can't become an elder or lead at any capacity at this church unless you're willing to give your life away. He says, the best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner, and a number of our elders too. Wow. This is what I think to myself. When death was imminent and the plague was cruel, Christians stayed put and gave their lives to Christians and pagans alike. Why did Christianity rise? 
because the Christians didn't abandon the city when the city needed them the most. Why did Christianity arise? And why did the Christians put their lives on the line? You want to know why? Because they were citizens of the city of God. I want to leave you with these two thoughts. Number one, every city should have two cities in it. And every Christian should be a citizen of both those cities. Second, a true Christian is not a Jonah who abandons the city. Nor is he a lot who partakes in the city's evil. A true Christian neither identifies themselves as a conservative or a liberal, a Democrat or a Republican. But if you study scripture, a true Christian identifies himself as a citizen of the city of God. And here's the catch. Citizenship in the city of God always makes you the very best citizen of the city you live on in this earth. I expect, no, I anticipate if you are a Christian and consider yourself part of Inspired Church, that you will help us love our city. That you will love your city. Because if you are a citizen of the city of God, that makes you the very best citizen of the city that you live in on earth. I'm going to finish with an odd story. God says, there are 120,000 people that don't know their left from their right. And then he says, and there's cattle. <laughs> you guys catch that? It's a little weird. I'm sure PETA would love that. <laughs> God loves the animals, going to spare the animals. But at the same time, he kills the plants. I'm not quite sure what's going on here. But he ends the story by saying there are 120,000 people and some cattle. And the question becomes, do all dogs go to heaven? <laughs> I think I found a theological basis for you dog lovers that that's possibly true. Amen? <laughs> I remember I got invited to a house to pray over a cat. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I said, no, I'll pray over you, not a cat. But here's what I want you to see. What in the world was God saying when he ended this thing with end some cattle? Well, here's an idea, here's a thought, and I'm going to take a shot. The economy of the city, the finances of the city, it's really important for us to understand is you and I have a plastic card that we carry in our pocket, right? We have money that we can carry with us. But in the ancient time, in the ancient world, in an agricultural society, you're looking at animals, especially cattle, were extremely valuable and represented kind of the represented the economy of the city. And when famine or plague would attack the cattle and not the people, it was sure the people would die. They lost what was most valuable to them. It was part of the big part of their economic system. And so what I want to say is that when God says 120,000 people, and when he says end the cattle, I want you to know something that is really beautiful about God. God is not just concerned with the hearts and minds of the people in the city, but he's concerned with the city's health and wealth in general. Because there are some of us in here today, inevitably, that may leave here and say, well, you know what? Let's go win some people to Christ, and let's pull them out of this evil, dark city, and let that city burn. But God says, no, I am concerned about every aspect of the city. It is strategic to the gospel heart of God. And if we are called to inspire church, we are called to Union City. And in year two, if we don't do anything for our city, then we need to question our calling. God's calling us to greater. God's calling you to greater. And you know what? We are transient. Some of you guys have come from different cities. I was actually just thinking about this. I was thinking, you know, I wonder if it was like maybe 10 to 12% of the people that attend on Sunday morning that are actually from Union City. So I have two challenges. Number one, if you live in another city, seek the welfare of that city. Love that city. Pray for that city. Grow in that city. Win people to loss in that city. 
But number two is, if we go through year number two and we go to year number five and we haven't increased in people that actually live in Union City, we're not doing our job. I have a personal challenge as a pastor to make sure that the citizens of Union City are being reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even if you live in another city, you attend this church, it's part of your mission too. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you, Jesus, for your challenges. Thank you for your encouragement, your exhortation, but we also thank you when your word cuts. I pray that every heart and every mind in these chairs would be inspired to move on mission at their homes, in their neighborhoods, in their cities, in their workplaces, at their schools, wherever you've taken them. May we not run from evil, may we run to evil. May we be willing to be inconvenienced for the gospel. And before we end with your head bowed, can you just take a moment, if you're strong enough, if you're brave enough, if you're courageous enough to ask, how can I inconvenience myself for the gospel?